0: Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm Jason Kosnicki, a research fellow and the editor of Cato Books and Cato Unbound. And we are here today to talk about the new book by Robin Hansen and Kevin Simler The Elephant in the Brain Hidden Motives in Everyday Life. Uh, it was an absolute pleasure of mine to read this book. It is fun, it is exciting, it is incisive, and it is uh, a real challenge, I think, to the uh, types of explanations that we commonly offer for human behaviors, and uh, that's why I thought immediately that it would be a good fit for uh, a Cato book forum because very often we rely on those types of explanations in the public policy world. And my understanding is that Professor Hansen has a talk that is going to aim specifically at that world and at the kinds of explanations that we often resort to in crafting public policy. So looking forward to that a great deal. Uh, if you do not know, I will, uh, will introduce Professor Hansen and talk a bit about his his various uh, qualifications and achievements. Robin Hansen is an associate professor of economics at George Mason University. He is also a research associate at the Future of Humanity Institute of Oxford University. He has a doctorate in social science from California Institute of Technology and master's degrees in physics and philosophy from the University of Chicago as well as nine years experience as a research programmer at Lockheed and NASA. He has over 3,630 citations of his academic work. He uh, is the previous author of the book, The Age of M, Work, Love, and Life, When Robots Rule the Earth. And he is a pioneer in the field of prediction markets, that is markets that attempt to predict the future. He's a principal architect of the first internal corporate markets, and also of DARPA's policy analysis market, which ran from 2001 to 2003. Professor Hansen has developed new technologies for conditional, combinatorial, and intermediated trading, and has studied insider trading, manipulation, and other forms of foul play. Uh, Without further ado, I will turn the podium over to him. Let's see
1: if this works. There we go. This is a talk based on a book co-authored with Kevin Simler. As he mentioned, my last book came out last year. I want to focus your mind on one big puzzle, which is, I was in physics. Uh, long ago, I started out in engineering. I went into physics. And I spent nine years in computer research. And I learned that in the world of physical devices and engineering and software, the world is eager for innovation. The world looks at designs and and artifacts and says, how could we make that better? And if you can find a way that's substantially better, the world will pay a lot. They work hard to find better things. And that's why if you go into that world trying to find a better way, you will find it really hard to find better ways because so many people are trying so hard. And then when I started learning social science, it seemed to me there were all these really big innovations all over the place, all these really huge ways that we could make the social world much more inefficient. And I looked at that and I said, wow, I must be a genius. (laughs) And I decided I should go into social science and try to make the world better by finding all these ways that we could make the world better and working them out. And what I discovered was... It is possible to find better ways. I wasn't mistaken. There are better ways. It's possible even to test them in lab experiments and other ways, but the world's just not interested. The world has relatively little interest in social and policy innovations, at least according to the usual criteria we say, and that was puzzling to me. And uh, initially, I became an uh, economic theorist. I worked out all these mechanisms how to make things better. I got a postdoc doing health policy, And in health policy, I really came to notice this puzzle that the usual story about what's going on just doesn't make that much sense from the point of view of all the actual behaviors we have. And I consider the possibility that maybe we're just wrong about why we do medicine. And once I had that idea in my head, I started to think about applying it elsewhere. And in fact, it made a lot of sense elsewhere. So my big explanation that I'm focused on in this book and I'm going to talk about here is this idea that the main reason that the world's just not interested in our policy innovations is that we are just wrong about the basic purpose of a lot of ordinary social institutions. Let me give you some examples of what I mean by hidden motives. In animals, most primates spend a lot of time grooming. That is, they pick dirt and bugs out of the skin and hair of other animals. On the surface, that looks very helpful. It looks like what they're doing is being generous and helpful to each other, cleaning each other off. But in fact, primate researchers say that what's really going on is politics. That is, groups that have bigger bodies, they don't groom more, but groups that have bigger groups and more need of politics, they groom a lot more and spend a lot more of their time grooming. Apparently, grooming is a way to uh, you know, create your and maintain your allies. Another example. This bird is a babbler. They're also in groups and some of the birds will sit way up high on branches looking out for predators and if they see them, they'll make a lot of noise. And that looks very helpful. It looks like they're sacrificing themselves to help the group. Uh, They also do things like getting food and giving it to other birds. That also looks very helpful. These are such helpful birds. But it turns out they fight for the right to be on the top branches and they fight to shove food down the throats of other birds. So in fact what it looks like is this is their status hierarchy. They gain status by being on the top branches and giving food to others. So it looks like it's helpful but it's not really what it looks like. But of course, these animals don't necessarily have hidden motives because they don't necessarily have beliefs about why they're doing things, they're just doing them. Let's think about humans. Many decades ago, there were what called split-brain patients. These are patients where the two halves of the brain have been separated from each other. Each half of the brain sees one eye, one ear, controls one half of the body. And when they're separated, they can separate and talk to the different halves of the, of the brain when those halves don't have any communication. So they can say to one half by talking in their ear, say, get up. And then that person will get up because they'll push on one side of their body and stand up and the rest will go along. And then you can ask the other side of the brain, why did you get up? And it turns out that the right answer is, I have no idea. <laughs> you were just talking to my other half of the brain. Well, how do I know? But that's not what... People do, people very consistently make up explanations and they are very confident about it. They might say, I wanted to get a Coke. And so you are a human with this capacity that your brain is set up to make up explanations for everything you're doing all the time, whether or not you actually know the reason or not. So that should be a little concerning. How often do you really know what you're doing? My last general example here, it turns out that if you're an actor and you're given a script of a scene like this, and the script basically says, I love you, no, I love you, we're so happy together, I'm so glad I met you, and on and on like that, people just can't act that scene. That's a terrible script to act. Why? Because we, the the watcher and the participants, expect there to be more than one level. In a scene like that, the first thing the actor will say is what's my real motivation here? Am I afraid of losing her, am I trying to let her down gently and dump her, there must be some other reason for this because it couldn't just be what's going on the surface. We, as humans, expect in fiction and in our lives to see multiple levels, to see a level of what people pretend is their motivation and then another actual level of motivation. So in our book we go through 10 areas of life trying to show that across 10 areas of life, in each area there's a usual story but then there's also a more plausible other motivation for what's really going on. Now, I don't have time to go through all of them here, but I'm gonna go through a couple. I'm gonna start with laughter. You guys laugh all the time, and you don't know why. If you think about it, you don't actually know why. There are some theories that people have offered over the years that you laugh when things are incongruous or when you're trying to feel superior to someone else or you see some sort of benign violation, but these don't make sense of a lot of the puzzles of laughter. So just to be clear about the puzzles of laughter, the vast majority of the time when people are laughing, there is no joke. Jokes are not the main reason people laugh. People laugh 30 times as often when they're around other people than when they're by themselves. When a speaker is talking and listeners are listening, the speaker laughs 50% more often than the listeners do. Ha ha ha. Uh, And we often uh, reveal things about ourselves that we might not want to say by what we laugh at. So we might laugh at the dropping, don't drop the show in the prison shower, as if to imply we cared nothing about prison rape, which is not the sort of thing we might usually want to project to people around us. But in laughter, we are okay with it. So the alternative explanation that makes a lot of sense of these puzzles is that laughter is a play signal. Animals play, a wide range of kinds of animals play, humans play, and play is a way of sort of doing practice variations on serious unreal real things, and in play you're supposed to be safe. So in play, you play act chasing or fighting, but you don't actually hurt each other, and you need a way to monitor that whether or not you're still in play mode or whether you've left play mode, and laughter is a play signal to say, we're still in play mode, and you do it when there might be a threat that you might be leaving play mode. So You you show that uh, we're still safe, we're still comfortable, we are not threatening each other, this is still just social play. And humans do a lot of social play because we're very social creatures, so we're constantly pretending like we're violating social rules but not really doing it because we don't really care because we're in play mode. Okay, now, the general pattern here to notice, which will apply to all these other areas, is there's a usual story about why we do something, especially the sort of story that we might be willing to say in public, out loud, then there's a bunch of details about this behavior. If you go study behavior, you'll see a bunch of details that don't fit this pattern that well. And then we offer an alternative motive that explains most of these puzzles in a coherent way with a small number of assumptions. And that's going to be the general story. And the meta puzzle I want to leave you with is, and come back to it at the end, is, well, if there's a real reason we're doing things, why don't we just admit that and do it for that? Because most of the real reasons we're going to talk about are perfectly plausible reasons to have. They're not reasons that it wouldn't make any sense to have, but still we're reluctant to embrace these motives. And just to be clear, we're gonna focus here on sort of distal causes of behavior, not necessarily what's in your mind at the moment, what you're conscious of. People vary a lot in their consciousness. Uh, People vary a lot in whether even behavior is functional or dysfunctional. Uh, In almost all areas of human behavior, they're all complicated enough that a lot of motives are relevant. And so it isn't about what is the motive. It's about what are the main motives. And the claim is that we are wrong about the relative fraction of how important different motives are. And in our book, we expect—we say we expect to convince you roughly of maybe 70% of our claims, 70% of the different areas where we say a different motive is is better explanation than a usual motive. And that's enough to say hidden motives are just all over the place. And if that's true. Uh, that is a big challenge to ordinary policy world because most policy analysis are making these usual assumptions about motives. And if those assumptions are wrong, their policy analysis is wrong. And so we say this is a big challenge to ordinary policy analysis. The claim that across a wide range of areas, most areas even plausibly, we are just wrong about our motives and policy analysis have just been incorrectly taking us at our word about what our motives are and what the point of things are. All right. Um, We have, again, 10 chapters. Uh, I'll just go through a second example here, body language. Uh, If you ask you why you are holding your body a certain way, you'll probably say, well, because it was comfortable. But it turns out that actors, when they learn to look realistic on stage, they need to learn how to do what's called status moves. When we interact with each other uh, in a in-person context, We are changing our body stance, uh, wide versus closed, our tone of voice, our matching, our rhythm of our motion and our voices in order to create a relative status ranking between the two people (laughs) so that one person is higher status than the other. And we agree to this, but most of us would not want to admit this. When we talk to our friend, we say we're we're just the same status. Not, Not one of us is better than the other, and we're just wrong about that, and actors have to learn that in order to be realistic on stage. So plausibly we don't want to admit to this relative status between uh, us and our friends. Uh, That's awkward. And we also do things like flirting that we're not supposed to be doing often through our body language, and that's also something we don't want to admit to. And so we'd rather not admit to these motives of our body language. Uh, My colleague Brian Kaplan has a book he'll come talk about here soon where uh, he'll go over the observation that The usual story about school is to learn the material, but in fact, that just doesn't make much sense of most of school. We don't actually learn that much, and the things we learn aren't really that useful. Uh, I went to Stanford for a while and just took classes for free by sitting in on without registering for anything, and nobody cares about that, and nobody tries to stop you. And so apparently, you can get the very best education in the world if you don't want the credential, which is puzzling. Uh, People get paid more for more years of school, but they get paid three times as much for the last year of high school and college versus the other years. Uh, What's that for? They paid for a lot of irrelevant majors, et cetera. And as Brian will describe in his book, more plausibly what's going on is we're using school to show off how smart we are, how conscientious, how conformist, uh, to habituate to modern workplaces, to network with each other and and indoctrinate ourselves. And that's more plausibly what's going on. The chapter on medicine is probably the most surprising and I don't necessarily have time to convince you, but let me just go over it quickly. The usual story about why we go to the doctor is to get well. We're sick and it's expensive, so we get insurance, et cetera. But it turns out that people who have more medicine on average are just not healthier on average. This is true of regions who get more medicine. It's also true in randomized experiments where we've given some people lower price medicine, which they then get more, and those people have not been healthier. We have surprisingly low interest in all the other things that affect health that seem to affect health much more than does medicine, such as air quality, sleep, status, uh, you know, diet, things like that. And uh, people are surprisingly disinterested in private information about the quality of medicine. Uh, They care a lot about what everybody thinks, but if you tell them privately something is effective or not, they seem to almost not care. Uh, There's keeping up with the Joneses' effects on we spend more when our neighbors spend more. We tend to like uh, big, complicated medicine that has high status, etc. And we claim is that what's really going on more than we like to admit is that medicine is like kissing the boo-boo. A child gets hurt and you kiss the boo-boo. It doesn't actually help, but they feel that you're caring for them and concerned. Uh, Similarly, uh, on Valentine's, if somebody, uh, you want to give Valentine's chocolate to you, don't ask yourself, How hungry are they when you decide how many chocolates to give them. You ask how much do I need to give to show that I care more than somebody who doesn't care as much as I do. And the quality mainly matters their perception of quality. You don't care very much about your private perception of the quality of the chocolate and they don't care very much about their private perception of the quality for the credit they give you for the gift. What you mainly care about is common signals of quality and that explains in medicine because it's a gift we care very little about private signals, about quality. And we mostly have to give enough to show that we care, even if, on the margin, the extra medicine isn't very useful. All right. Well, um, again, I don't have time to go through all 10 chapters. I might encourage you to read the book. But if you, as most people seem to do, most of the reviewers and people who read the book seem to mostly accept like at least 70% of our claims and our sections, what is this, what's the result of this? What, what conclusions can we draw? First of all, there's this big meta-puzzle, why don't we know what we're doing? And we offer the explanation that it's about humans are different from other primates in having what we call social norms. That is, these are rules about what you're supposed to do and you're supposed to, if you see a norm violation, you're supposed to uh, tell people about it and help punish it to reduce norm violations. And a lot of our norms are in terms of motives. So if I accidentally hit you, that's okay, but if I hit you on purpose, that's not okay, that's a norm violation. And so we are very concerned to manage the impressions others have about our motives, which means all the time, whenever we're doing things, we're running a little story in the back of our heads are what story could I tell about my motives right now? What would be my explanation if someone were to challenge me right now and accuse me of violating a norm with a bad motive, what could I say instead? And we do that all the time, and so we're constantly ready to tell a good story about our motives, And we're more ready to do that than to actually figure out what our real motives are, because it doesn't actually that much matter to us in our conscious minds what our real motives are. Our conscious minds are more like our press secretary. They're there to to make an explanation to everybody else when they challenge us, but they're not really in charge, and so they don't really need to know what we're really doing. They need to manage the good story we're going to tell. And you might think that if humans did a really good job with norms to enforce norms, that we wouldn't really need the huge brains we have because primates mainly have huge brains to manage the really complicated politics of their large groups. But if we were doing norms well, we wouldn't need that, but we have the biggest brains of all. And the explanation we suggest is because once we have norms, then we start norm evasion, and norm evasion is a very complicated and mentally challenging task where you pretend to follow norms, but you don't really, and you very carefully calculate when you can get away with what. And so now, coming to policy, we want to draw the contrast. So far, people have been talking mainly at solving a fake problem. The fake problem is to try to figure out ways, institutions, policies, etc., to give people more of what they pretend to want. They pretend to want health and medicine. They pretend to want to learn the material in school, etc., all the way along the line. And we, when we go do policy analysis, we try to figure out. How to do that, we make arguments for how to redesign the institutions to give people more of what they say they want. But if they're wrong about what they want, and they kind of know it, then when we come up with solutions to give them more of what they say they want, they will in fact not be very interested, which is what we see. Because we're not actually solving the problem they really had, we're solving the problem they pretended to have. So what we actually have to do now is figure out how to redesign institutions to allow people to continue to pretend to be trying to get the things they're pretending to want while actually giving them more of the thing they really want. If we can do that, we might get a lot more actual interest in our policy reforms because we will be going to the emotional heart of what they're really trying to do. If you can find people ways to let people show off more at school, they might like those schools a lot more. Schools that help them learn the material more, not so interested. Uh, and that's my presentation.
0: Thank you. Uh, In response, I have invited Amanda Postilic, professor of law at the University of Maryland Carey Law School, where she teaches criminal law, evidence, and law and neuroscience. Her current research includes work on models of mind in criminal law, evidentiary issues presented by neuroscientific work on memory, and the role of pain in different legal domains. Prior to joining the University of Maryland, she was a Klaminko fellow and lecturer on law at Harvard Law School. She graduated Yale Law School and Harvard College and has been a visiting scholar at the University of Cambridge, Emmanuel College, in the history and philosophy of science department. In the spring of 2015, Professor Postilnik was a senior fellow in law and neuroscience at the Center for Law, Brain, and Behavior at Massachusetts General Hospital, which was a collaboration between the Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Law School. Please join me in welcoming Amanda Postilnik.
2: In response but not in rebuttal. Uh, I enjoyed the book very much. Thank you uh, for a really interesting read Um, and uh, the first thing that I thought of as I started to read the book is one of the ways I like to open my criminal law classes with my first-year students who come in bright-eyed and eager to learn about justice. I ask them what do you think the law is for? I get a lot of answers. Justice, fairness sometimes social organization, sometimes, because it's a criminal law class, safety. And there's not nothing to those answers. Those are extraordinarily important organizing principles that run as through lines through certainly all mature justice systems and uh, many early justice systems. But it's possible to see relatively rapidly that those are not complete explanations, and that if they were complete explanations, we wouldn't have many of the contradictions, inconsistencies, and inefficiencies that we see throughout legal systems. And that those contradictions, inefficiencies, inconsistencies are so predictable and so routinely recurring that they can't just be accidents. Um, They appear to be more like features than bugs. So what could be going on? We can turn to uh, Professor Hansen's work and notice that law serves many purposes in expressing social norms, norms about order, norms about what kinds of behaviors are permissible and impermissible, particularly if you look at criminal laws around sexual behavior, they have transmogrified extraordinarily over the last 100 years uh, from making adultery an automatic per se excuse for heat of passion murder and homosexuality as a death punishable offense to uh, quite different regimes in the US, where now a person who kills their uh, partner or spouse because of infidelity by law, at least in the state of Maryland and in many other states, will not have a heat of passion excuse, and gay marriage is constitutionally sanctioned, same-sex marriage. So we see that law is really a mirror of norms, uh, sometimes a promoter of norms. Law also signals power, the kinds of power relations that uh, the uh, authors here are indicating to us that we like to try to keep secret from ourselves. So under the shield of justice, maybe the laws we're making in the area of property rights have a lot more to do with propping up the value of your neighborhood. You're not going to say, we like excluding people who are different from us, because that's taboo, or at least taboo now, but you can say, oh, well, we care a lot about population density. We care a lot about mixed-use zoning. And sometimes that's purely, uh, uh, the people who are making those statements know it's a subterfuge. And sometimes they earnestly hold those beliefs, even if not sincerely at some very deep level. Because this kind of self-deception permits us to have peace of mind about types of exploitation and inequality within law that we otherwise think that law is designed to oppose. And so because of who we are and how we're made, we sometimes make our systems work quite at cross purposes to each other. I'll touch on a couple of examples specific to the criminal justice system. Uh, The elephant on the brain had 10 chapters to do a kind of galloping tour of the world. Um, I want to try to add something that wasn't in the book, which is hard because it covered so much. Uh, So I'll focus on some areas I know about within criminal law. So uh, within the criminal system, we see a few kinds of recurring and predictable self-deception. By actors on the criminal system, uh, I mean law enforcement experts and prosecutors and then by people who are charged with criminal activities. Um, In actors within the criminal system, we have some systematic problems that lead to false or coerced confessions, inaccurate or even forged expert testimony, and what seems to be a peculiar prosecutorial attachment to. false convictions. I don't mean they seek to gain false convictions, but rather that when evidence comes out of a false conviction, prosecutors can be remarkably reluctant to acknowledge the falsity of the conviction. So we can look first at false or coerced confessions. Um, In cases that relate to actual innocence appeals of life sentences or death penalty sentences, it's more common that you might think that a person is coerced into giving a false confession. You might think, who would give a false confession? Who would ever say, I did this terrible thing that I didn't really do? Well, if you take a person who is perhaps not very bright, perhaps from a very low socioeconomic status and very intimidated by the police, and possibly a juvenile, 16, 17, 18 years old, because it's only recently that juveniles have been exempted from the death penalty. They may have a very poor understanding of what's happening to them, as well as a great deal of deference to the person, usually multiple police officers, who are questioning them, often over a 24-hour period or longer without any other adult present. The officers say things to the juveniles like, Just admit what you did, and I'll let you go home. Just admit what you did, which is A, B, C, and D, and I'll let you call your mom. And through that kind of leading and suggestive questioning and false promises, it appears to the suspect that if they make this confession, then they'll have a chance to really explain it later once they get their lawyer. Well, nothing is more damning than a confession in your own words. And it is just almost impossible for the people who are engaged in the business of getting the confession to believe in false confessions, for them to believe that they themselves are perpetrating a wrong. I would say this is a a classic example of self-deception that the actors in the system believe not only to be functional, but just that they believe to be the positive performance of one of the most important social roles, but that instead relates to highly deceptive priors that they hold themselves and that are reinforced by a criminal justice system. We see some similar situations with experts who routinely testify exclusively in one direction, generally for the state, but sometimes for the defense, often without significant regard for the evidence. Um, And also in some, certainly not all, but some prosecutors. This is where I feel compelled to say some of my best friends are prosecutors. (laughs) Half my friends from law school are prosecutors now, and I think very good ones. Nevertheless, you may have heard the story of the Central Park Five, um, who, uh, uh, raise your hand if you haven't heard the story of the Central Park Five or if you think your neighbor hasn't. Okay, thank you. Uh, In the 1980s, an era of quite high crime in um, American cities and relatively low economic prosperity, at least compared to the 1990s, there was a lot of fear in cities about um, kids running wild, particularly groups of African-American kids on the street, on their dirt bikes, um, creating fear on the subways and in parks and in neighborhoods. A woman who was a, a young woman who was a banker um, in Manhattan was going for a jog one evening in Central Park. She wound up um, brutally raped and nearly murdered. Her head was bashed in with a brick. She suffered severe brain trauma and never recovered. Shortly after the perpetration of the crime, five boys were arrested. They confessed they were convicted. Some 10-15 years later, a serial rapist who was serving a very long sentence in prison confessed to the crime. Um, The boys were then represented by attorneys associated with the Innocence Project uh, and other counsel. Where strong evidence of their innocence came out, The, uh, the other incarcerated man who confessed gave evidence, but there was very strong resistance on the part of the prosecutors, to reopening the case and permitting the boys to be exonerated, no longer boys, uh, now having spent um, much of their adulthood in prison. Um, What would that resistance come from? If you become a prosecutor, you must be committed to justice. I would expect, given these kinds of explanations of how we justify our behaviors to ourselves, that it would be extraordinarily painful for a prosecutor or a police officer to believe that they had done such wrong in the service of doing right. And therefore, psychologically, uh, perhaps perhaps even evolutionarily, there might be an effect where you double down on believing in your own rightness. In other words, there's some kind of expression. It takes a big person to admit when they're wrong or something like that. I'm not saying it as eloquently as I could. On the flip side. In the minds of criminal actors, uh, people who commit crimes, do you find that they often subjectively believe that they've done wrong? Well, again, frequently no. I don't know if you've ever seen the Broadway play or the movie *Chicago*. There's a wonderful scene, at least in the movie, where all the women of Murderous Row are singing, "He had it coming. He had it coming. He only had himself to blame." and uh, talk about how they had these provoking victims who brought it upon themselves. Not an uncommon narrative in people who perpetrate crimes of violence. He had it coming, or she had it coming, the provoking victim. That doesn't make it lawful, but in the mind of the perpetrator, they believe it was okay. Now, this might beg a question, and I'd be curious to hear uh, James's view on this what is the line between self-deception and bad character? (laughs) A person could fully understand that what they're doing is wrong but still believe that they're justified because that person was worse. I'm not sure if they're the same or if they're different. Um, So then we might ask, how do we deal with subjective sense of justification versus determinations that conduct is itself illegal? Uh, There's a, a rather clever solution in the model penal code that uh, governs much of modern American criminal law, which is to move away from the historical emphasis on motive. Did this person have a willful, wanton, and wicked heart? Was this depraved heart murder? These are wonderful terms from the old common law that invite a lot more moral judgment. Instead, in the Modern criminal process, most states have moved toward mental states of purpose, knowledge, recklessness, and negligence, which are much more bloodless and instead invite us to judge simply whether the person intended their action. So um, if I have the purpose to pick up a gun and shoot Smith, in the back row versus the gun having gone off by accident, that's what the law will look at, much less my relationship with Smith and my reasons for doing it and whether I'm a wicked person. So we can move a little bit away from questions of self-deception by moving to a somewhat more objective standard, at least for defendants. So that's one potential move. Because what we might wonder is how can we deal with all this pervasive self-deception and still achieve the more beneficial aims that we might hope to uh, have accomplished through our legal systems. The last area of law I'll comment on is uh, the jury, and then um, maybe some suggestions for more effective legal institutions coming out of uh, this work that's being discussed today. Jurors. Uh, Very few cases get to juries. But jurors still perform a very important role in both the criminal and civil justice system. Um, Jurors generally do not sit around thinking, I'm extremely biased and a bad decision maker. Uh, (laughs) At least we hope. (laughs) Attorneys do voir dire uh, of uh, prospective jurors. Um, Some jurors admit to bias because they are genuinely self-aware biased people, and they're stricken from the jury pool. Some jurors admit to bias because they really, really don't want to serve on a jury. And so they're being strategic about it. And they're stricken from the jury pool. And the rest go in for jury selection. And so we hope we get unbiased juries. But are they really unbiased? What do you think? Do you think they're really unbiased? Is any of us really unbiased? That's the problem. It is impossible not to have bias. Bias is not necessarily wrong. It's not necessarily harmful, but some of them are. And the, perhaps the most profound problem with bias is our lack of insight into it. It's both a form of self-deception and a form of implicit acculturation or tacit knowledge to which we have no access. I think that's a little different from self-deception, but they're closely related <coughs> concepts. Um, If you have been uh, inculcated your entire life with a set of information that turns out to be wrong, I would say that you're mistaken more than self-deceiving. Nevertheless, both fall into the category of explicit or implicit bias. So jurors may believe that they are engaged in a neutral appraisal of information. Nevertheless, they're bringing to it their implicit bias about class, or race, or what they think they would have done under the circumstances, Um, or their implicit ideas of how the real man behaves under certain circumstances, or how much the real woman would have resisted under certain circumstances. Without making those explicit and subject to conversation and discussion in the jury room, it can really um, uh, not just alter, but perhaps even pervert the way they evaluate the evidence and come to their ultimate conclusion. Uh, Dealing with implicit bias, I think, is one of the most challenging issues uh, facing our jury system. And um, perhaps the entire system of criminal law, because it operates from the moment a police officer decides to stop somebody up through the ultimate disposition of a case, whether by plea or by uh, by jury verdict. Um, And then if that bias tends to operate predictably in one or more directions, leading to greater contacts with the police, it helps exacerbate uh, create, exacerbate, and reinforce systematic inequalities. I would say our, just as um, many of our forms of self-deception are about status and prestige, um, our social institutions recapitulate our status hierarchies. Whether it's in provision of medicine, or provision of education, or provision of legal services, legal preference to preferred groups, legal disadvantages to dispreferred groups. So um, what are some things that we might do? If we are at least explicitly committed to norms of fairness, particularly in a criminal justice system, um, and want to move away from some of the status or prestige reinforcing effects in this area, what could we do? Well, I'd be making a lot of money if I knew the answer. I wish I could tell. Um, But uh, there may be a couple of areas that could be useful. Um, one may be a greater reliance upon algorithmic policing. I don't want to blindly put faith in algorithms. Algorithms are made by people. The data that goes into training them is generated by the data we already have, and therefore can itself recapitulate all the biases I'm currently complaining about, for example, Medical research databases are mostly full of white people DNA. And criminal law databases are mostly full of non-white person DNA. And And so if we developed genetic algorithms for who's more likely to develop a certain medical condition versus who's more likely to commit a burglary, there would already be bias built into those systems based on our sampling inequality to begin with. So I really don't want to say. Algorithms are the answer because science is pure and math is beyond question. Nevertheless, um, if one keeps design carefully in mind, it is possible to reduce certain forms of human error and human judgment. For example, possibly in a parole determination, there could be markers or indicia of future violence, rates of recidivism, that have a lot more to do with the extent of somebody's social structure uh, that they have to be released into and job prospects, and a lot less to do with, well, do I feel comfortable in this room with this guy, which may be a valid signal, but may not be. Um, Another potentially really interesting area, but I say just potentially, is um, brain imaging. Um, Brain imaging is an area that's rapidly under development for lie detection. Somewhat, with some success, not that successfully yet, Uh, but I would be curious to see if, given its limited success for explicit deception, it has any success with self-deception, where at some level you really know, but you're concealing. If we take the prosecutor from the Central Park Five, let's say that person just doesn't want to admit that the boys were innocent, but does really know it would we be able to pick up self-deception of that kind, which is more like an explicit lie you won't admit to than the kind of implicit secret that you keep even from yourself. So as lie uh, lie detection technologies develop, that would be something uh, something to watch. Um, But I'm very curious to hear other people's perspectives. Thank you very much.
0: And now, to signal how smart and authoritative I am, I'm going to offer some comments. I want to start with a really big question. And the big question is this. What do we mean by explanation? This is a philosophical question. This gets us into the realm of epistemology pretty quickly. Uh, We have here a case of a wide variety of different things that are purportedly explanations for behavior. And the first move that I would like to make in this conversation is to offer a caution. And this is a caution against what the philosopher Daniel Dennett has called greedy reductionism. Daniel Dennett likes to point out that whenever someone gets a shiny new philosophical toy, they like to try it out on everything and to explain everything with reference to the new philosophical toy that they have acquired. This, I think, is a danger when we look at the evolutionary psychology of behaviors. There are some cases in which hidden motives don't seem adequate. Can can the hidden motives, the elephant in the brain type explanations, alone get us to an account of human behavior? I would suggest that the answer is no that they are extraordinarily useful, but also to a high degree limited. And I will give some examples of what I mean by that. In the book, uh, Hansen and Simler talk about why there is music. And the answer to this question that they give is that music is a fitness display in mating. If you are capable of dexterously manipulating instruments or your own voice, it shows several things about you. It shows that you're healthy, it shows that you have a very highly functioning brain, it shows that you have an understanding of beauty, which is often difficult to acquire, and it means that you are potentially a good mate. And this is why there is some music in human societies rather than no music. The problem with this explanation, I think, is that it is not adequate. In fact, it seems obviously inadequate when we drill down to individual cases. Why do monks who are observing a vow of chastity still make music? We can't say that it's because they are hoping to mate. Probably not. Why did Johann Sebastian Bach make some of the greatest music of all time? And why is it that I can't really carry a tune and I'll be surprised a little bit if my voice survives the rest of this talk? Uh, I'm not a very musical person. Uh, Bach was an extraordinarily musical person. How do we explain the difference between these two? The evolutionary account of why there is some music rather than no music does not seem adequate to the task. Bach, as it happens, had two wives and 20 kids. Are we comfortable? with the explanation of Bach's music that holds that he was doing it to get laid. I'm not comfortable with that. Bach offered his own explanation for why he composed music. It was that he was a pious Christian. Music for him was a form of worship. It was something that he did because he believed in God. We have two different kinds of explanations here. And it happens that the domain of anthropology has a categorization for these types of explanations. It is what's known as the etic-emic split. Have people heard of etic and emic before? A few people? Okay, so I'll, I'll explain this. An emic account of an action, a behavior, a belief is one that makes reference to things arising within the culture itself. An etic account is like an etiology. It makes reference to things that are maybe unknown to the culture or that people wouldn't necessarily accept as their own motives. Bach gave an emic account of why he composed music, or presumably he would give an emic account. He was pious. He believed that music was an act of worship. That's why he composed music. Robin would give an etic account of why Bach composed music because human beings have this tendency within them that was favored over evolutionary time because it increased the reproductive fitness. There are etic and emic accounts of lots of different behaviors. Uh, Christianity is one of them. If you want to look at Christianity itself, an emic account of Christianity says that Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary by divine intervention. The one true God has one son, it's him. was crucified for our sins, died and rose again, etc., cetera, et cetera, that's an emic account of Christianity. An etic account of Christianity looks like something, uh, looks like what Ludwig Feuerbach did in in The Essence of Christianity. He said that Christianity is a religion that comes from a sort of projection of the spirit of mankind onto the divine. This is what we get when we try to imagine a universal man who also participates in the divine. And that man, of course, is Jesus Christ. We are encouraged to identify with him. But uh, the the account that Feuerbach gave of of Christianity was very, very different. It was an etic account rather than an emic account. Likewise, we can do this with crime. And this is where we get into public policy. Social, Social scientists have long noted that crime rises and falls over the course of a year. If we control for other variables especially, you get a very clear pattern in urban crime where the hot summer months are the times when crime rates tend to go up, and the cooler winter months are times when crime rates tend to be lower. This is an etic explanation of crime. that it says it's partially dependent on the weather. An emic explanation of crime, we've, we've heard one of these already, he had it coming. Yeah, it, he had a coming. It was something that he deserved. This is a, a an account of crime that looks at consensus moral views or what are hoped to be consensus moral views within the culture that produced the behavior as well and applies them to the behavior. Or we might say also in an emic mode that the criminal was a bad person, the murderous should not have been doing those things, but she did them because she was vicious or because she was heartless or because she was uh, motivated by some motive that we in the culture that, that perpetrated this crime also identify as bad motives. That's an emic account of crime. Now, in anthropology, the etic-emic distinction is not a normative distinction. Anthropologists don't say that the one is good and the other is bad. And anthropologists usually will say that both edict and emic explanations are important and we need to think about both of them. And that is what I would also urge here today. Yes, by all means, think about the elephant in the brain. Think about the evolutionarily conditioned responses and motivations and the hidden reasons why we do things, but also pay attention to the emic. Also pay attention to what happens within a culture when people try to explain themselves and their own behavior. I would suggest that the conscious mind is not merely a press secretary, not merely a uh, rationalizer after the fact. And one of the ways that the conscious mind is not merely a rationalizer after the fact is as follows. Suppose A person commits an action for which, at the first instance, the reason behind the action, the motivation behind the action, is one purely of evolutionary psychology. Purely, it is an evolved, conditioned behavior that comes from the mental apparatus that we have acquired through evolution. And then we ask the press secretary mind why they did it. And the press secretary mind gives, as it would, an emic account of the behavior. He had it coming. Well, that's the first instance. What about the second instance? What about the third instance? That emic account of behavior is already out there in the world and perhaps it is acquiring adherence. Perhaps we've come to believe that yes, this person had it coming and other people in a similar position might also have it coming. Now we have something that looks a lot like a claim in moral philosophy. So while the initial first instances of these behaviors may have been motivated by evolutionary psychology, may have been motivated by the things that our ancestors predisposed us to do by passing on their genes, in the second instance, We have something that looks much more like an action that is situated within a culture and an account of that action, an explanation of that action that is also situated within that culture. We have an emic explanation grounded in moral philosophy that certain people just deserve to be punished. I would suggest that these two different types of accounts very frequently co-occur. The press secretary so-called is an agent in his or her own right and has the power to motivate people or not. So rather rather than submitting to or falling victim to a greedy reductionism through which all things are explained through the elephant in the brain, I would suggest that there is really a great deal of room for explanations that combine the etic and the emic, that combine the motivations that arise from outside of the culture, from a place outside of the culture, and the motives that arise from within that culture. And that both of them need to be looked at if we are going to explain behaviors from the wonderful and the grand and the beautiful, like Johann Sebastian Bach's music, all the way down to the actions of a murderer and why they murdered someone. We don't have to find any of them either normatively good or normatively bad. But I think that for an adequate explanation either way, we need to combine the edict with the emic. That would be my response to this book, my response uh, both as a reader and as someone who's very interested in public policy. I don't think that you will end up with an adequate account of human behaviors, particularly those that the public policy world takes great notice of like crime, unless we look at both of these types of explanations. So I think I'm going to to close now and I am going to welcome questions from the audience. Yes. Uh, before we begin, before we begin, uh, please begin by stating your name and your affiliation, if you have one. And make sure that your question is in fact a question and not a speech. Uh, and you may you may ask questions of any of the three of us if you like.
3: This is for Robin Hansen. Uh, interesting ideas in terms of social innovation. And, okay, I'm Brian Bruns. I'm an independent
0: consulting sociologist. I'd like to ask if you'd speak a bit more about medicine and healthcare, that the opportunity, the insight you seem to be saying is there could be some way to give people more of what they really want, but we need to also be giving them what they say they want. Does this offer... Insights in terms of particularly current issues in the medical system and healthcare and such, which are very thorny public policy challenges?
1: Um, so, quickly, briefly, <laughs> um, what's mainly going on is we are personally showing each other that we care, and we are using this larger medical system to do that. Um, which is something we have a purpose to do. We, we have a reason to want to do that, to show each other that we care, and, and it's good that we are able to do that uh, and distinguish people around us who care about us more versus less. Uh, but because we talk as if it was about health, uh, then when we enter the policy world of, of you know, the larger world, we decide it's a good thing to su- subsidize it more and to pay more for it, et cetera, uh, when that doesn't actually help <laughs> much in a world where we're mostly not paying attention to how effective it is. We're mostly just spending to show that we can and will spend. So uh, if you're just trying to show how much you care by spending a lot, subsidizing the spending isn't very helpful (laughs) if the spending itself was just to show that you could spend. Uh, If people were paying more attention to the quality and effectiveness, then. you know, then it might be useful to help them. But if they're not paying much attention to that, then giving them more resources to do the same thing isn't very useful. So right from the start, the, the helpful thing would just to be to subsidize medicine a lot less. Um, arguably, you might say that many nations of the world have figured out that one way to reduce the excess of spending on medicine is to socialize it and take it out of individual hands and... Um, uh, and then individuals will say, well, I'm trying to help you, but I can't because there's a system here, and I, all I can do is help you with the system. And then they reduce the size of the system by, and, and then they actually waste less, <laughs> uh, you might say. Uh, you know. But uh, when, when the conversation comes up, should we do more together, then, of course, people say they want to do more, and that's not actually very helpful. There's, there's lots of ways we could make medicine more effective if people were interested in that. There's, there's many, this is one of the things that you know, I discovered early on. There's lots of mechanisms by which we could make medicine much more effective, cost-effective, et cetera. The hard part is that people don't care. <laughs> you propose these things, and people shrug their shoulders and they yawn, and they, they look away, and they, they can't be bothered. <laughs> So, in a world like that, the main issue isn't how could we do better, it's how could we get anybody to care about doing better. And that's more the fundamental problem.
0: I, I made the mistake of sitting down because I was concerned about not making uh, a dominance gesture and remaining at the podium, I guess. Uh, yes. David Mannheim, uh, RAND Corporation, Party Rand Graduate School. Um, so Robin, you said that the, the real policy problem is, and I'm, I'm not going to exactly quote, but to, to give people more of what they um, actually want, um, while helping them appear to get more of what they say they want. Um, and I wanted to push back about that a little bit. Um, specifically, I wanted to know, why are we not interested in prioritizing what it is people say they want? Why, why wouldn't we, in the case of medicine, actually try and use what it is that people really want to motivate them to do more things that get them what they say they want. You know, It seems like we should be pushing to make people healthier even if that's not what people really want, even if what they really want is to feel better about you know,
1: the fact that they're sick. So we all talk as if we care about making medicine more effective. <laughs> And in that conversation, it makes sense that we would want to make proposals that would do that (laughs) because we talk as if if we found those, we would support them and they would happen. But they don't. (laughs) Um, So you have to make proposals to an audience that actually cares about your proposals and is willing to act on it. (laughs) Fundamentally, uh, giving people proposals that offer them more of what they say they want doesn't actually do anything. if you aren't talking to people who actually want the things that you're offering them. So to the extent there was a larger group of people who did want more to actually produce health then that audience can be talked to, but we've just overestimated the size of that audience. I'm not saying it's zero. I'm saying it's smaller than we talk as if it is because most people talk in as if they were concerned about health and they're not actually very concerned, which is why they don't actually adopt the proposals that we've long had that would actually produce that more. So, My first cut is to say the policy world should first notice there's this huge engine out there that would actually listen to them and do things if you could give those people the things they actually want. Now on the margins maybe it would be better to shift them in the direction of the things you think would be better for them and we all think would be better for them but we've been failing to get much energy out of people to do anything because we've just been assuming that they want to do the things they say they want and then they don't and then we make proposals and they just shrug and don't do anything. Uh, yes,
0: yeah. could I ask a follow-up? Oh, sure, yeah, yeah.
2: Uh, so I, I, why don't you go first, sir? Yeah, it has a also
1: a little bit to do with your prosecutors because I haven't read the book, I just bought it. Uh, but I wanted to see how aligned it is with what Upton Sinclair held that it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon is not understanding it. How aligned is that?
2: Uh, That certainly brings up the point of motivated reasoning that Tversky and Kahneman have written about so well. Um, I think there are many intersections with Robin and Kevin's work and uh, the work in behavioral economics. They don't necessarily depart from the same premises. Um, Behavioral economics doesn't rely explicitly upon any kind of biological explanations, which does... uh, I think dovetail nicely with Jason's point that in many ways you could leave aside the biological or the evolutionary psychology arguments and still have an observationally true set of phenomena. Um, We can be, uh, I think, self-deceiving in the way that the babblers are. They don't know why they act the way they act. And we can be self-deceiving in the way the, uh, to take an example from the book, the Soviet apparatchiks were. they knew they couldn't sit down and stop applauding for uh, Stalin because the first one who sat down, you know, uh, I wouldn't take that risk either. So that's a kind of explicit implicit self-deception that I think you're describing. Does that, is that responsive to your...
1: <laughs> I'd say that when you have, somebody has a job... <laughs> and their career depends on certain outcomes, we can be relatively confident that that will be salient to them and they will act on that. So I'm relatively less puzzled about why prosecutors really try to prosecute and not let them <laughs> their prosecutions go away or why doctors really push a lot of treatments What's more puzzling is what ordinary people are doing in these contexts. Why ordinary people give uh, the legal system the discretion that they give it or police the discretion. Why ordinary people are so gullible or so willing to believe what doctors tell them or so uninterested in critiques. Those are the more interesting puzzles. But certainly once you have a person with a job where their career and livelihood depends on certain outcomes, it's relatively easy to understand their motives. (laughs) But there's a lot of other motives going on, and the question is to understand all those other motives.
0: Uh, Carl Smith, from this Cannon Center. So this is for Robin. Um, one of the things I wanted your take on is, I saw uh, when you were writing about the health stuff, you know, you know, over the years, lots of people in the blogosphere and the intellectual community sort of like agree with you and understand you and say this. But as soon as like healthcare policy got to be an issue, all that understanding seemed to fly away. And those same people were making accusations that without health care, thousands of people were going to die. What, if anything, like can or should we like, do about that?
1: <laughs> it's a great observation to notice. I mean, it's really important to notice. That our book is about being frank and honest about some things. And in a situation like this, where we're all intellectuals and specialists, we can talk and be frank and honest about that, because we're talking among ourselves. But we all have patrons and clients outside of our world who won't tolerate that sort of direct, honest, frankness in that larger world that they're dealing in. And when we need to support them in their world, they'll either need us to shut up, go away, or stick to their party line. So this is one of the problems with being honest and frank about our motives, which is why I don't directly propose that. I didn't propose that we go out and tell everybody the truth about what they're all doing and slap them in the face until they admit it. That's not the proposal here. (laughs) The proposal is to talk among ourselves and be frank amongst ourselves and then design proposals that will let people save face and continue to pretend to do the things that they want to pretend. I'm not telling you to challenge that and make them admit the opposite, but we should be taking that into account in the proposals we actually make. Uh, David Mashi with the Pew Research Center. Uh, First, I want to thank all three speakers for excellent presentations. Thank you very much. Um, And my question is for Professor Hansen. Um, You talked about the role of social norms in uh, sort of Uh, helping to sort of cause and promote these self-deceptions that all of us engage in. Uh, But obviously some social norms are there for a reason. Uh, Some of them are very good. Um, And I haven't read your book, so maybe you address this in your book, but if you could talk to us a little bit about whether you think there are times when we shouldn't necessarily strip away all this self-deception because we want to maintain some of these norms that are possibly propped up by these self-deceptions and lies and things like that. So all of the real motives we have are all completely reasonable motives to have. <laughs> they aren't motives that we should suddenly drop and stop following, they are reasonable things. We want, to sh- we want to show off how smart we are, we want to show how committed we are to our allies, et cetera. Those are all perfectly reasonable things and so it's fine to keep doing them. We also try to be clear and accept that we evolved not to be consciously aware of these things or to admit them very much and that's probably in your personal interest <laughs> And we are doing you a disservice if we just tell you to to start yelling about this and telling everybody because then you will be punished and that won't go well. Um, So the the point is that when you go out and do policy analysis, we think it's more your job to be honest about this, at least with yourselves, because otherwise you will just misjudge the whole point of of common institutions and your policy reform suggestions will just be misguided. Uh, you will be messing everything up if you don't understand what's really going on. Uh, Ordinary people in the context of doing the things they do, going to school, going to the doctor, et cetera, they are probably well advised to keep doing what they're doing for the reasons that they're doing, even to continue to not be aware exactly of why they're doing them, uh, because they're in an equilibrium where that's the right, that's the rewarded thing to do. But if you stand up and say, I'm a policy analysis and I have studied the world and I think the world should be different for this reason, It's on you to actually know what you're talking about.
2: May I contribute an example to that? Let's take the example of a politician who wants to signal that he's tough on crime and cares about the unborn. And this is a set of laws that have come up and been repealed and come up and been repealed, excuse me, repealed a couple of times in recent history. And so uh, that state crafts a regime where pregnant women who are drug addicted are convicted of a drug crime and incarcerated through the birth of their child so that the unborn child can be protected from the ongoing drug abuse of the mother and hopefully be placed, either be born unaddicted or uh, if born addicted, go right into care and be placed into foster care or other supportive care. So this signals very well to the constituents of the lawmakers who make these kinds of proposals, and it sounds normatively reasonable for these valued norms? Who's going to say, I really love drug addicts and I especially love making drug addicted newborns? Nobody. Um, what happens is women who live in those states who are suffering with drug addiction, the only reason they'd keep taking drugs when they're pregnant is because they're addicted. A person who's not addicted would not make that choice. And you can't just stop your addiction. So what do they do? They abjure prenatal care. They avoid the hospitals like the plague. And if They get to a crisis point where they need prenatal care or they're in labor. They go across the border to the next state where that law doesn't exist or they just have their baby at home. It leads to much, much worse outcomes for uh, maternal, fetal and maternal death. So the policymaker would make this point, Um, but you can't propose that to the electorate. I I would suppose, and the lawmaker would not have a good time proposing that to the electorate. I'm really tough on addiction and I care about newborns, so I'm going to give them supportive housing and all of these benefits and all of these things that sound like we're giving them more than we would give you, dear honest citizen who's never used drugs. Um, So perhaps the art is in finding a way to create the signal that you want, while creating the outcome that you want, instead of having the signal um, swamp out the outcome, and there's the word subsume, is there something like oversume (laughs) the outcome? Because here, the signal is bringing about the exact opposite of what you would hope would be the substantive result.
1: Just to say it more simply, uh, this world that we're all trying to impress isn't thinking very carefully about any one thing we're doing in terms of what it implies. So uh, you know, a standard observation that we talk about in the book is how uh, you're not supposed to drink in public, but if you drink out of a paper bag, the police won't stop you. Why? Because that just gives them an excuse not to stop you. It's not that anybody's really fooled, but people just need this excuse not to pay attention and then they can look the other way. And that's true for a lot of policy. There's a lot of policy where if you scratch a little bit below the surface, of course it's not really doing what it says, et cetera. But people aren't looking below the surface and they know the audience isn't looking and so, They have to satisfy this audience that's going on surface impressions, and that's how it works.
2: Hi, everyone. My name is Hannah Reardon, and I'm a student at the University of Pennsylvania. And I actually study something called health and society. So it kind of brings in a lot of different disciplines that relate to what we've been talking about. So my question is about if any of you have encountered the idea of healthy neighborhood design, which is a field um, of research that's growing in environmental health and anthropology in particular. Um, And it's sort of just a policy solution that integrates clean air, lots of public outdoor spaces to promote exercise, um, eliminating food deserts, and having there be access to healthy foods, particularly in low-income neighborhoods that lack these resources. So I don't know if any of you have encountered that, but that's just a little quick definition, and I wanted to know if you thought that was a good solution. I'm
0: not sure I know enough about the topic to really want to to, to give an opinion. You?
1: There was a recent paper directly on the food desert thing in the last two weeks. I think, uh, basically showing that uh, it didn't really <laughs> access to food didn't really have, make much difference to the kind of food people ate there. Uh, I mean, so this is an example of the kind of thing that sounds good according to the kind of things we think we're trying to do. But um, you know, if you actually ask why people are actually not eating various foods, it doesn't actually have that have that much to do with whether they have access to healthy foods. Yeah. Uh,
2: there's a, a paper by Dan Kahan, who's a professor at Yale Law, who's done a lot on the expressive theory of law that um, I think we, we later see strains of in some of Sunstein and Thaler's work, Nudge Is Not shove. Well, his, his paper from the 90s, Kahan's, is Nudge Is Not Shoves. And then, of course, Sunstein wrote Nudge. And environmental design is a lot about nudges. Um, I saw a competing paper about food deserts that said it didn't inc- change the overall composition of food that many people ate, but that their overall health outcomes were better. S- so uh, leaving aside what people are eating, and I think that is very hard to change. You know, Take my Doritos from my cold, dead hands, um, <laughs> especially the Cool Ranch ones. Um, <coughs> Behavior change that's accomplished, <clears throat> pardon me, implicitly rather than explicitly is likely to raise fewer of these direct challenges to narratives that we tell ourselves, perhaps. Uh, yes.
3: Thanks. Uh, Bonnie Wachtel, Cato supporter. Uh, Mr. Hansen, let me ask you to. Uh, respond to something I heard at a, a slightly different panel on a similar subject. This panel was on what the academy looks like these days in the social sciences. And one of the comments that really rang true to me was someone saying, this field is so overwhelmingly dominated by the left that you have broad swaths of human behavior, and intention that have never fully been studied. And the principal example he gave was envy as a motivator. And even here today, we've heard a lot about implicit bias um, on the right, meaning, uh, or the hidden motivation, things like implicit bias, which is a heavy, heavy example. We haven't heard that much about envy, things that people are really doing that go, uh, trying to redress the status hierarchy, even though they always give lip service to trying to help the least fortunate, something that capitalism does much better than socialism, as we know. Uh, do you agree with that? Is, and would you care to elaborate any, any more along those lines?
1: It's worse than you think. You're imagining a world like, say, there's physics, and they just want to understand physics, and they get it right, and they go over to social science, and then people have these agendas, and they're getting it wrong over in social science because they've got these agendas, whereas in somewhere else, like physics, they're getting it right because they don't have these agendas. The basic fact of the intellectual world, including academia, is they're just not trying to get it right anywhere. Uh, Academics and intellectuals, um, we have a little discussion of this in the book. Uh, It's sort of like the basic conversation. Ordinary human conversation, we talk as if it was about sharing information, but it's mostly not. Small talk doesn't actually share very useful information. And we have a lot of norms about uh, staying close to a conversation topic and not embarrassing people, et cetera, that that mean that we don't actually share that much useful information. But we do show off and, and and create a lot of connections. And when we go to the larger media or academic conversations, we bring a lot of these functions of conversation along there. And honestly, we're mostly trying to show off. So social scientists and physicists and even law professors mostly were graded and evaluated on how impressive our research contributions are. We aren't really graded at all on how useful they are, or whether we're covering the whole territory, or whether there's missing topics we're not covering. Nobody cares. <laughs> they care if your topic seems to be in fashion, it seems to be have a, an intellectual pedigree, is using impressive methods, and you seem to have the support of other impressive people. And that's what we're doing everywhere. And yes, there are some biases because some people don't want to hear some things, and whoever's there has their favored conclusions. But that's a small bias compared to the much larger one. We're really not trying at a fundamental level to actually go out there and understand all the things there are to understand. Oh,
3: yes.
2: One of my favorite lines in your book is that academics get invited to talk to
3: the lesson. Good afternoon, now. my name is Greg Shuck, I'm a higher
0: education
1: lobbyist. And uh, first I want to say thank you to Cato because for a lunchtime presentation this is great brain nourishment, so thank you. Um, <laughs> Professor Hansen, because of time, you've skipped over the chapter about politics. And that was the one I was really kind of interested in having you talk about. So can you talk about this chapter? Uh, briefly, uh, she mentioned one part of it. Uh, If we say, what's the story about politics? If I ask you, hey, what are you doing in politics? Why are you there? You know and we all know that the story we're supposed to tell is I'm trying to help. I'm helping my city, county, community, nation, world. I'm making the world better by figuring out what the better policies are and pushing for them and coordinating with people to try to identify and advocate for the better policies. But plausibly, politics is not more fundamentally about politics a policy, excuse me, which uh, more about being an apparatchik. It's more about showing your loyalty to a community by making sure you seem loyal to them, and that explains a lot of the puzzles in politics that uh, don't make so much sense from the point of view of you are trying to actually help. Now, just to be clear, the world is big and complicated. The excuse the dog ate my homework only works because sometimes dogs do eat homework. <laughs> so all the excuses we use in all of these areas work because they are sometimes true. There is a degree to which, and and sometimes people are trying to make better policy. Sometimes they are trying to learn the material. Sometimes they are trying to get healthy, all the way down the line. It's just a lot less true than we like to say. And so there's a number of puzzles that we identify and explain that are better understood by saying your fundamental emotional and, and relationship to politics is trying to show your side that you're with them and that you're faithful to them and that you've got their back and that's the more fundamental emotional intuition you have in politics. And of course, it depends a lot on which groups you have around you and who, you're, who you identify with. But that better explains your votes and your, conver- your political conversation, et cetera, than the idea that you're trying to make the world better, which, honestly, isn't very plausible.
0: Yes.
4: Thank you. I'm Antetal, independent consultant. Uh, I think it is, uh, thank you for the presenters, very interesting presentations. Um, And it is really good that behavioral economics is coming also on the open. uh, But, um, uh, and to explain about the hidden, unknown, but spoken uh, motives. I wonder in your research, because unconscious was developed, uh, created or discovered, rather, by Sigmund Freud over 100 years ago. And he also developed a uh, method uh, to try to find about these uh, unknown motives and how to work with them. I wonder, in your writing your book also, Freud wrote about um, uh, application of psychoanalysis to uh, justice system in in, in criminal justice. Um, Did you um, review any of this work uh, to try to um, see whether you have, whether there is some commonality in what you are writing and what uh, 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 what uh, was uh, written by uh, Freud and his followers. Thank you.
1: The intellectual world is vast, psychology is vast, everything Freud has written, everybody after that is vast. We, we certainly haven't thoroughly covered that. We, we even distance ourselves a little from Freud in the Book just to be clear that we're not saying what he said. Uh, but, you know, the world is vast, there's all complicated, but our book is actually really pretty simple. And I'd like to emphasize that. Uh, you know, when people start talking epistemology, you should watch your wallet, because <laughs> it sounds all big and grand, you have to wonder what they're up to. But we're really, really focused, and I hope they can testify that our book is really, we take specific areas and we say, in these areas, people say they're doing this, but here's a whole bunch of puzzles that don't make sense. And then we offer another explanation that makes more sense of those puzzles. That doesn't say that's the only thing going on. It says that's a thing that's going on that's bigger than we admit to. And that's just our main method. And so the first third of the book just tries to make it plausible that we might not be aware of what we're doing. And there's many ways to make that plausible. And Freud was one way to make that plausible. But once it's plausible, then the next step is to show that it's actually true. The the mere plausibility just isn't enough. I I have to convince you that in many specific areas, in fact, your motives aren't what you think they are, and the only way to do that is to go area by area and to show you concretely what you say your motives are and what makes more sense of of common behavior, and that's our method. And so we're trying to avoid all the grand philosophizing and all all the grand literature review of everything and debating all the grand theories that there are. We're trying to stay close to concrete behavior and talk about real concrete behavior in the actual puzzles of the real world.
0: Uh, I'd like to just say, as the guy who brought up up epistemology, I'll just say that the Cato Institute thanks you for your support. (laughs) And uh, I'm I'm glad you brought up Freud, in fact. I'm I'm very glad that you brought up Freud. Although I, I don't think that you really work within a Freudian paradigm. I don't think it's fair to characterize the argument that way. Uh, There's something very interesting and important about Freud, which is that he, too, is offering etic explanations for human behavior. And uh, to my mind, at least, this is a signal move of the Enlightenment. The intellectual historian Peter Gay, who's written about Freud, characterizes him as as particularly belonging to post-Enlightenment culture for that very reason. And uh, I would say that this is one of the ways in which post-Enlightenment culture does uh, differentiate itself from pre-enlightenment cultures is that it is often comparatively willing to work with edict accounts of human behavior, and it has done some truly remarkable things by navigating that distinction between the emic accounts within a culture and the edict accounts that seem to come from some other place than within the culture and address itself uh, to to the explanation of behavior. So although I don't necessarily agree with Freud's conclusions and, and you know not that many people in, in psychology do anymore, it is still important to recognize that he's embarked on a similar type of project which is, which is uh, an edict account of human behavior. Uh,
2: to the extent uh, Freudianism <clears throat> remains vital in some areas of law, it's, it's been somewhat destructive. Uh, Jason mentioned that I work uh, as well in my neuroscience and law capacity on pain and chronic pain. There are still Freudian roots to US disability law. Now, some people who make disability claims are engaged in fraud, some people are not. But Freudian psychoanalysis, Freudian psychology is not a very useful way of distinguishing uh, true from false claims and Freudian ideas of hysteria are still deeply embedded in legal ideas of pain and chronic pain, even though they've been discarded by the medical establishment. So uh, without making a judgment on the value of Freudian ideas for psychoanalysis and other purposes, um, its legacy in law is very mixed at best.
0: I think we have time for one more question. One more question. Yes.
1: Uh, again, I'm Per Kurowski, Voice and Noise Foundation. Uh, I just wanted to ask this Is the world better off with blissful ignorance upon this subject or not?
2: It's <laughs> a good closing question. Uh-huh.
1: The world is now big enough that ordinary people can continue to remain ignorant, and some specialists could not. It's valuable that we have intellectual specialists who understand more than an average person does about important topics. This is an important topic. This is the sort of thing the people who specialize in this topic should understand. Uh, whether everybody else should, I don't know. I I have often though imagined uh, a twenty-year-old person uh, in a college library, who's more like the hero of um, you know stories where everybody's been lying to them all the time, and they're they're just frustrated, like, why? what's really going on in the world? Everybody says these things, and that can't be right. And I've always wanted there to just to be a book there for that student. (laughs) That if you say, okay, you you see that everybody's bullshitting, and and things aren't what they seem, you really want to know what's going on, there's a book for you. And I'm happy that I could say there's now such a book.
0: (laughs) Please join me in thanking our panelists.